Welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org to find out more about all that our ministry offers. Do you sometimes feel like an imposter in life? Like everyone else got an instruction manual for how you're to be liked and successful, but you never got one. Am I the only one who constantly feels a day late and a dollar short? Or is that how everyone feels? Well, our guest today, David Zoll, wrote the book that answers these questions. It's titled Low Anthropology, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. David Zoll is the director of Mockingbird Ministries and editor-in-chief of the Mockingbird website. Born in New York City and brought up elsewhere, he graduated from Georgetown University in 2001, worked for several years as a youth minister in New England, and in 2007, he founded Mockingbird Ministries in New York City. Today, he and his wife, Kate, reside in Charlottesville, Virginia with their three boys, where he also serves on the staff of Christ Episcopal Church. He's the author of several books, Low Anthropology being his most recent. David Zoll, welcome to the back porch. It's good to have you. Oh, thank you so much, you two. I'm really, it's a real honor. It's really fun to, especially during the middle of the summer when when a lot of this sort of stuff slows down to, yeah. to, yeah, to shift back into, you know, conversation mode. I'd love it. Oh, thank you. And yes, we've also got Peter here, my co-host, one of my co-hosts, Peter. We've been reading this book together. Welcome. It's good to have you on the back porch too. Yeah, I'm so excited. This is a conversation that I've been looking forward to. Yeah. We we were talking before we started recording how we've been kind of geeking out about this book and having a lot of fun with it because it hits so many of the things that we at Signpost In just are driven by, like that that drives what why we do what we do. David, before we jump into the book, hmm. I, I have I have to ask you in your bio you you were a youth minister in New England. My wife is from Massachusetts, and so I, she would. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you where in New England you had served and lived. Well, I had an interesting gig. I I lived in New Haven, Connecticut, but I was I was working with a parachurch group that worked with boarding schools. So I was itinerant. Oh. And so I was all over Western Massachusetts, especially, and up into New Hampshire and a lot of Connecticut schools. And yeah, so I was everywhere, but I lived in in Connecticut, sort of in, in in New Haven, which is on the coast there, and it's it's the location of the best pizza in the whole wide world. So, <laughs> I mentioned I think I mentioned it in in low in the book that we're about to talk about because it's that <laughs> I can't talk about that town without mentioning pizza. What what is the name of that pizza place? Well, the greatest one is called Sally's. <clears throat> Excuse okay. me. It, there's one called Pepe's, which is quite well known, and then there's one called. Modern. They they basically have five of the best pizzerias in, in that are regularly ranked in the top twenty pizzerias in America. And people think of New York pizza, but it's actually it's the way people think of what they think of German food. What they're they're really thinking of Austrian food most of the time when they think of like you know pretzels and and and, and huge sausages and stuff like that. And but 
when they think of really, really good New York pizza, what they're actually thinking of is New Haven pizza that was then brought into New York. Anyway, you get all this sort of free of charge when you get, get me on the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it just, it, it flooded me with the memory of being in Connecticut and I was trying to figure out which one it was. I read about the famous pizza place and their white clam pizza. Yep. And I drove an hour to get white clam pizza mm. and it was delicious, first of all. And then as I was driving back to the town I was in in Connecticut, literally on the exit to get back to my town, there's a there's a sign for that same a, a, another location of that pizzeria. I could have driven five minutes. It was so funny. But yeah. anyway, great pizza. So yeah, loved it. <laughs> Before we jump in, could you tell me just a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Especially what is Mockingbird? And then maybe a little bit of why this book. Sure. Well, I, um, I'm a 44-year-old man uh, with three children, three boys. And uh, I have had a number of different titles over the years, but what ended up, what I what I ended up, I worked as a youth minister for a while and then started Mockingbird, sort of right around the time that a lot of the blogging, the, the explosion was happening, though we weren't, we only started a blog or a website as sort of a secondary thought. We were really trying to reach sort of 20-somethings and also those who'd sort of been burned by the church. That was what our brief was originally, though we held it lightly in order to see sort of how it would be shaped. But in order to do that, you start a website. Anyway, I say that only because not only did the financial crisis hit and we had to leave New York City where we were started, but um, this media stuff took off. And so Mockingbird morphed quickly from a, a kind of a New York-centered relational ministry that was really seeking to emphasize the grace of God in a kind of a radical and refreshing way into a platform, what's today called a platform, what the publishing industry calls a platform, where we're using every means we have. And by that, I mean, yes, we do podcasts and we've got a very active website and we have a print journal and we do we publish books and we do events and things like that to using all of these various outlets to, you know, talk about God's grace and how it yeah. sort of resonates with our lives or, or it's, it, it's absence, how that sort of plays out too. And so that we started in 2007 and moved to Virginia where I'm on, on staff at a church here part-time. I was working with the students. Now I'm sort of like a writer in residence and I oversee their adult education, but because I mostly do Mockingbird. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a person who was brought up. My father's a theologian and my younger brother, who I know you guys have had on the show is also yeah. a theologian in he's in Cambridge. And my older brother is actually a uh, he's a pastor or a, a, a Episcopal minister in New York, outside of New York City. And so I'm like the kind of, for lack of a better word, I sort of like the out of the box one, but we're all in the family business, which I would say is the gospel and trying to, uh, yeah. to, to give it a fresh airing. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so what was the, yeah, what prompted this particular book, this idea of low anthropology, which we, we listeners, we will define, I promise, but Maybe that's the segue into that kind of what is it? What is low anthropology? Which begs the question yeah. of how is it different from high anthropology? <laughs> sure. Well, in terms of it, you know, as as we've been doing Mockingbird for the last 16, 17 years, 
I've noticed that one of the primary ways to talk things that resonate with people, and I'm not just talking, I'm talking about Christians as well as non-Christians, just people, is when you talk about human nature in a way that's recognizable. And then for me, I can't I can't do that without using the Bible or leaning on the Bible in some way. And but if you do that with a kind of an air towards a more humble view of human nature, I I find you actually p- people's ears open up in a and and it's they're just you know you're 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 talking about the the deeper things rather than casting some vision of superstar aspiration you're talking about what 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 keeps people up at night and so anyway i i felt that in order to this was a, a, a an opening that i didn't feel that there was i didn't i couldn't find any books that i felt were really doing a great job of it. But at the same time, I felt that in the culture, there was coming to be a bit more of an openness to talk about the cultural word for it would be vulnerability or imperfection. And Mm. that after years of the fruit of perfectionism and performance driven culture, and you, you, you would, you started to find self-help books or simply just popular books talking about Hey, we can't have it all. Hey, there are limits to what we can do. Hey, let's, let's, this perfectionism is actually causing something called burnout. And let's talk about that. There's a real toll taken when we assume that human beings are uh, capable of more than they are or better than they are. And so I wanted to, I felt there was an opening. I felt I had something to say. And I, whatever, my passion in writing is always for sort of translation rather than uh, in synthesis, rather than kind of fresh. You talk to Simeon for the kind of brilliant insights. I'm, I'm more the one who likes to try to figure out how I can communicate that in a more, in a fresh and wider way to take what's already been done. And so this book is a work of translation. I, I feel like it's a trying to translate a, a biblical anthropology or an Augustinian anthropology into modern parlance in such a way mm. that the, it casts the grace of God in much uh, starker and more beautiful relief. So, so, but there, there's also other emotional phenomenon going on in my own life and in the life of the world that I would say fed into it. I, I mentioned burnout, but I'd also say loneliness is a huge mm-hmm. factor in our world today. And I, I often think it's, it may not be created by a high anthropology, but it is certainly not helped by the sense that everyone else is killing it and not me, or I can mm-hmm. only expose the world to my best side rather than my Mm. actual life. And Mm -hmm. so whenever you're having to hide or create some sort of curated version of yourself, you're in the realm of um, loneliness. Mm -hmm. So that's a long answer to a, to a short question. Yeah, no, that's, I think it just, I personally resonate with so much of both what you perceive culturally as well as the uh, just the deep need for translation Mm. i have a real passion for that too like a real desire to bring because so much of it has been lost and to be able to articulate these biblical deep christian sophisticated truths you know in ways that are actually understandable it's really hard and Mm. I, I don't anyway, so I really, really appreciate that. I, I do think that probably we need to pause on that very note and just kind of can you real basic for us, anthropology. What do you mean by that? What's going on here? Like sure. maybe just maybe a really brief sketch of low versus high 
and yeah. what the word means. Yeah, I know so, it, it is a, initially an off-putting word. I accept that. And like, I'm talking about translation and okay, Dave, then you, you picked a, like a, not a user-friendly word. Well, I mean, anthropology, those of us who, there who, you know, uh, that have some associations with it as like a, a class that you didn't want to take in college, you know, or a class that only a certain type of person would take. And, and that's cultural anthropology. That's the study of how cultures form and how they, how, you know, tribes form and how countries function and things like that, families. But philosophers and theologians have always had a different way of understanding the word anthropology. And that's simply what you, what you believe to be true about human nature your kind of operating definition or conception of what men and women are like, what we're good at, what we're not good at, what our limits are, what our capabilities are, what our liabilities are. And so that is how I'm using anthropology. It's simply your operating view of human nature. And everyone has one. Everyone said when they said, I'm only human, that is an anthropology. Or when they say that was a very dehumanizing thing, for you to do, they're drawing on an anthropology. So it's not always conscious, but it's there. And, you know, in tandem with translation, I also wanted to give some fresh vocabulary. And I think sometimes it can be helpful to have something that's, you know, just a, a new term that can maybe shed some light on old things. And I, I think in, in practice, when I talked in these terms of low and high anthropology, folks would uh, feel like they had some a new tool in their in their tool belt. So anyway, the you would chart anthropology on on a on a continuum of high to low. And essentially when you're talking about high anthropology, you're talking about human beings may not be perfectible, but they're they're capable of vast improvements. And we're certainly very improvable. High anthropology sort of understands you and I to be defined by our best moments and our greatest achievements. And while mm -hmm. a low anthropology doesn't deny those things, it says what's what's sort of, if you really want to get to know someone, you need to know about what they leave off their resume. You need to know about their mm. kind of their uh, blind spots, or at least their, their, the truth, the things that are really true about them. And so I, a low anthropology it's a more humble view of human nature. It doesn't mean human beings are bad and high anthropology doesn't mean people who think human beings are good. It's, it's, it's much more complicated than that though. So I don't want to map it onto mm. that, the, those judgments a hundred percent. And yet I would say that a low anthropology is, is what Anne Lamott says when she says, everybody is broken, clingy, screwed up and scared. Even those who you think have it most together so try not to compare your insides to their outsides. That's what, she, when, when she says that, you know, oh, everyone's clingy, scared. That is that shaming? No one, people actually don't usually hear that as shaming. They hear that as, oh, I'm not the only one. And mm -hmm. that's what a low anthropology does properly understood. A high anthropology, I, I use Steve Jobs as an example of sort of trust in your intuitions. They know where you to go. You know, graduation speeches are full of high anthropology. Kind of believe yeah. in yourself reach for the stars, be all that you can be. And while it, that it's a little, again, it's, it, it takes a full book to write this out because it's not simply, a low anthropology is not in some way opposed to accomplishment or aspiration. It simply doesn't begin there. And mm -hmm. we're living in a culture of, of supremely high anthropology in which mm -hmm. everyone feels like they're the only one who is kind of making it up as they go along. Yeah. You know, I guess you could tell me if I'm off base here, but it, what I 
what captured my attention about it, what I really resonated with or was able to understand is it's like the counterintuitiveness of the high anthropology starting point where it feels like the right thing to say. You're given the graduation speech or you're talking to your graduate. It feels like the right thing to say, which is you can do it. You know, anything you set your mind to, you can do it. I have five kids and it's so hard in some ways. Like you could be anything you want to be. All you got to do is try. Mm. And that sounds so right. It sounds so encouraging and good to me. Mm. But having been the child who received it and then failing, (laughs) (laughs) realizing just how like, it's not that the other answer is you can't do anything you suck. Mm. It's that the low anthropology is more like saying, have a realistic view here. Yeah. Which is so much more healthy for me. Like, I can't be anything I want to be. That's just not true. And if I go into life believing that I can be, boy, that's a life of, I I mean, I've been there. It's a life of despair. Sure. I mean, if if, you know, fulfill your dreams, find your passion and and manifest it. I mean, that's a very huge burden to put on a 21-year-old or a 16-year-old. And yet you're right. I don't want my child. I don't want, you know, I want him to hear from Steve Jobs (laughs) rather than Anne Lamott when he's like, it is very, you know, uh, formative stage and and struggling when he believes he's awful. I want to be able to say, no, God has given you enormous gifts. There are Mm -hmm. all sorts of opportunities and I'm here to help you walk alongside you as, as, as we figure these out. What I don't want is to say that there is a singular answer. And if you unlock this door, you, or unlock that door or else, and you are, the the purpose of life is to get it right. And Mm -hmm. if you don't, you know, heaven forbid, when, when in fact, I think the purpose of life has a lot more to do with loving and being loved. And I don't think love makes any sense outside of a low anthropology that's just admiration or respect love is love has to do with people seeing you as you really are it has to do you coming alongside your son when he does you know fall on his face and saying Mm -hmm. let me help you up i mean that's it does not have to do with slap high fives when he when he wins the race that's great but we love those who as walker percy says who see the worst in us and don't turn their face away I'm I'm all for the cause of love in the world. And I think a low anthropology counterintuitively is a more reliable mm-hmm. starting point for that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that the counterintuitive nature of low anthropology throughout your book, as well as sort of sort of the counterintuitive way that a high anthropology directly connects to a sense of low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Because well, I'd I'd love for you to, to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, but my sense from reading the book was that when we set expectations for ourselves that we have no way of achieving, the only possible outcome from that is disappointment, disillusionment, and frustration. Mm. Um, and was I picking that up correctly or would oh. you elaborate on that? <laughs> That's very, very perceptive. Yes. I think that the obsession with self-esteem is is part of what we're, we're a few uh, decades out from that, I think, in, in just culturally speaking. And yet people are often afraid within Christian circles to talk about a low anthropology, which is there in the Bible and, you know, written all over it. 
just by the fact that it's a religion of salvation, but we're, we don't want people to feel bad about themselves. But the way that people feel bad about themselves is when they believe that there's a can do it all, they can have it all, they can be it all, they just haven't figured it out yet, or they haven't pulled it off yet. That is the recipe for actual shame. And that is, I think, I think that's just empirically true. I don't, I don't, I don't need to draw on the Bible for that one. And so a real shame at least has to do with the fact that I'm uniquely broken or I am, I'm uniquely incapable of something that everyone else is pulling off naturally. You know, we live in a time where it's easy, it's easier and easier for that facade to be communicated to people, especially young people. We see the, the, the outcome on mental health. It's not good. But, you know, I almost named the book Realistic Anthropology, but that just doesn't have quite the same <laughs> ring to it. And I do, I do think in certain ways, the human creature, at least if I read the Bible right, is, is not just sort of doing the best they can. I think we're in many ways, in some ways, we're doing the best we can. In some ways, we're actively doing the thing that we know we shouldn't. And, and we're, you know, so that's how do you make sense of real misbehavior are you surprised by it are you shocked by it do you have to explain it away as some aberration of only those people or do you make some sort of allowance for the fact that there's some sort of flaw in the system there's some kind of you know and i, I think you end up spending a lot less time being being up in arms about human uh, dysfunction if you have at least make some sort of allowance for it from the get-go. And therefore, if you're, if you're less up in arms, then you can actually work to redress it and to minimize it and to contain it rather than just sit around being and judging it and, and holding yourself up above it, which is, as we know, yields nothing very good except right. for more of the same. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has occurred to me, and this would be even a less helpful way of, naming these things but it's almost like there's a this there's another axiom or uh, axis on the spectrum it's like multi-dimensional anthropology and single dimensional anthropology right because you've already hit like three or four different consequences of holding a low anthropology and it's hard to talk about because it is so multi-dimensional it allows for our limitedness it allows for it allows for what we call sin Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm limited and I am doing the best I can, but I can't, but I can't achieve everything. I'm also ill-willed, like fundamentally in some ways, and that I'm not doing the best I can. And that's just, you know, those are just two dimensions. And it seems like the counter to that is so often the high anthropology is like this one dimensional, you have the willpower, you can do it or something to that effect. Mm. And there's also a kind of a one dimensional low or bad anthropology. You kind of suck. Mm. And that's it. Anyway, I don't know. I just that's occurred. Yeah, I I think that especially within Christian circles, you, you, when when you, what most people think is a, a have heard as a low anthropology is not what they're what yeah. they hear is you're you suck now stop like mm. now yeah. change right. and that is a low anthropology says that you have real deficiencies and that part of that deficiency is seeing those things as deficiencies. And part of that deficiency is being able to change that deficiency. So this is, a, it posits a need for God, you know, in an interventionist God. Now, another thing that a low anthropology says is when we talk about limitations is that 
the idea of like human certainty about almost anything or complete mastery is just unavailable to incomplete people. And, but certainty, certainty is, is such a destroyer of dialogue. It's a destroyer of faith in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's a destroyer of relationship, I, I, th- I think. And, and certainty, a low anthropology says that I'm limited by my context, by my history, by my biology by the fact that I can only be in one place at once, so by time itself. And so in any given situation, I can be 99% right about something, but there's always going to be some evidence that I'm missing. Some, uh, some, some factor that we're going to, just to put, put time-wise, there's going to be something about our lives right now in 2023 that we look back on in 30 years and say, woo, cringe, you know? Um, yeah. We were so certain about that and we were completely wrong. And that's just a lesson of history. Um, but I think it goes hand in glove with the low anthropology, which is really a humble anthropology. And, um, and yes, it, it makes allowances for malice and evil and, you know, intentional misbehavior, but it, and it also makes an allowance for a kind of uh, boundness, you know, addictive, compulsive misbehavior of people sort of struggling against things that are larger than they are. They have a limitation in their willpower, but also allows us to, you know, move forward into the future with hope and conviction, but not ironclad certainty, which tends to fuel authoritarian <laughs> oppression of other people, if, uh, right. which I, you know, those are the ones you have to be worried about people who are hundred <laughs> percent certain that they are right about everything. That's right. And I don't think that the Christianity allows for that in a hundred percent. That's God's, that's God's wrong. Sorry. No, absolutely. I love that. I, it, I really hope it comes through as people are listening that that the experience you have that I certainly had, I think anybody will have in reading is kind of a sigh of relief rather than a, boy, this is really bad news. Isn't this horrible? I, everything is just dark. It's like, no, no, no. You actually feel this. There's, there's actually a sense of hope that comes about. Mm. Well, that, that is, that's a beautiful thing to hear, Brandon, because that's what I wrote the book. I, the person I trust most in the world is sort of a spiritual director, a lady who I'm, 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 I'm just, she's wise, you know, you, you have people in your life who just, who sort of almost their, their actual being is an argument against low anthropology. But I mean, <laughs> I, I gave her the book to read. I said, is this a downer? Is this, does this book seem to be like, ugly in some way and she wrote are you kidding and she's a you know in almost to 70 and she said i felt better with every single page and i said oh well mm. then then maybe i've come close to what i was hoping to to pull off because that's what yeah. i want i want to communicate compassion relief identification and hope because it, hope is only as robust as what you're hoping in and so if you're placing all your hope in something that cannot actually do anything you're you're actually grinding yourself deeper into despair but if if any if if this book takes some of our intuitive hopefulness about the world because as a christian i don't i don't do hopelessness you know i believe god is the great change agent and agent of hope in the world and so if this book maybe displaces a little bit of the kind of hope we put in ourselves or our children or our institutions and says actually let's let there is hope to be found but God is the, the agent of hope. And here are here are 50 different instances of where hope has come from mm-hmm. the oddest place that we can only attribute to, you know, God. Yes, absolutely. It's and it's there's something about the 
I, I was sitting with somebody very recently and it was, it was so funny. It was like straight out of the book, mm-hmm. someone struggling with their own internal conflicted desires. I mean, honestly, David, like out of, out of this person's mouth came the question almost verbatim. Am I the only one like this? Did everybody else get the instruction manual? And it was just kind of funny. I was just, I mean, it, I was like, amen. No, you know, nobody else got the instruction manual. You are normal. (laughs) And the relief that that brings to be able to say, oh yeah, I am super conflicted internally. And I don't like that, but that's, that's not, that's not, doesn't make me uniquely bad. Hmm. Allows, I just watched it happen right in front of my eyes, allowed this person to then ask some real questions about maybe what could be done about this, how God could be a part of this. And it was just other, which the other way of going, which I think is so, feels so right. Like we were saying earlier is to kind of be like, you can do it. You're not, you know, these conflicts aren't really real. There's really a real you in there. You can find it. You can go with your instinct and figure it out. It's like, well, yeah, that just sort of damns you into trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> I think God can reveal stuff like that to you. Sure. And people experience all sorts of revelations that could be helpful about themselves, but any kind of appeal to a person's willpower or their agency. And when it comes to the real problems of life, and I'm, when I'm talking about loss and I'm talking about, you know, deep resentments and heartbreak and grief, addiction, willpower is such a, it's just, it's not non-existent. It's just, but it's pretty puny. And it's, and you really, I think you set people up for a deeper suffering if you draw on it or point in that direction because the culture is all that's all it points to and i'm not i'm a person that loves the culture you know i'm, I'm sitting here surrounded by action figures and movie posters and uh, but i think culture often does a, can do a great job of pointing to the impasse of the human condition and and the way that the miracle and surprise of love in the midst of it and how we see acts of beauty and kindness and like those are surprises and they're exciting and, and cool but if you are in the midst of a real, real issue, and my answer to you is basically to try harder or to mm-hmm. reconceive of it even in this way, mm-hmm. rather than appeal to the, the only uh, person or force divinity that can do anything about it. I think that, you know, that's what I, I, I want to do that second part. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Can we, mm-hmm. can we turn to, I guess, sort of in the interest of time, what I'd like to do is turn to the question of sin and how that fits into this. Because, I mean, we've sort of touched on it already, but I think that would be both sure. interesting for me to hear, but also I think my audience would be really interested in, okay, most of the people I think listening to our show are probably pretty familiar with a like, you know, the 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 clear idea that the Christian view of human nature is that we're fallen, sinful. Mm-hmm. I do think for them, a lot of times listeners, you can email me if I'm wildly inaccurately representing you here, but I guess I'll speak for myself. Like the areas I had to grow in is like the compassion for limitedness, the compassion for the conflicted desires and the addictive weakness of willpower, addictions, power over willpower, stuff like that. But when you start talking about the fact that we're self-centered, I'm like, okay, I get that. Yep. Right. But this isn't really a clear question. Can you say some more about the word sin and how that fits into this low anthropology? 
Well, sin is a very, very loaded word. And especially if you right. grew up in a religious context, it's uh, been used as a bludgeon uh, almost always mm. because it's been coupled with a high anthropology understanding of the will. Mm. And uh, it, it is an accurate description of uh, our propensity to do the wrong thing for the wrong reasons or do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And, but, and simply the, 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 just the compromise, the kind of turned inwardness of the, the human operating software. And I don't want to mechanize us too much, but there's something flawed about our, that is kind of inherited in the DNA or however you want to put it that, you know, we have a, we have an archaeology of sin in the, in the Bible, where teleology of where it comes from. But I'm not as interested in sort of outlining that as simply saying that there is something about the, the as my younger brother says, there's something about the software that keeps throwing up errors. You know, it just it just does. And sin for most believers has been used as a way of saying that's true. Now you, but you also have it within yourself after you become a Christian um, to limit those errors and if you try hard enough and if you believe strongly enough and if you sweat enough morally you become a sort of a moral athlete and you train hard enough you can stop you can kind of change the code if you would and i just don't think that that's true i think that god and the holy spirit works in people's lives in surprising and beautiful ways and we see that all the time but it's rarely in direct proportion to their efforts it's it takes the form of sort of being blindsided in some ways or you know you hear about something you've said to someone that was of extreme help and comfort to them and ministry to them in a period and you had no idea you said it or you thought you said something else and years later they come and say, thank you so much for being there. When I was there, I was like, what? I have no idea. So we we hold out the possibility of all sorts of transformative goodness and beauty in the world, but it's just not in direct proportion to our ability to engineer it, even as Christians. So sin, I would say it's a useful term. I find that non-Christians have a much easier time with the word sin than as than Christians do. They tend to hear about it as something like, there's something uniquely wrong with you that's not wrong with me. And that's an imprecise definition of sin that has done enormous amounts of damage. And so I want to give people the room to sort of use other words if they need to, because I know that we operate are below the level of intellect. I can know that I've inherited some cultural perversion of the word sin, but I just can't seem to get around it in, in my own heart. But if I talk about it as self-interest, if I talk about it as dysfunction, I mean, I talk about it as like bias is is the cultural word for for sin these days. Mm -hmm. And it operates very similarly. I mean, it's something about, there's something about you that has a way of privileging certain people over other people or privileging certain experiences over other experiences that you don't control and that somehow is inherited partly through upbringing, partly through just, you know, cultural context or or simply through nature and it it tends to create damage and that's sin i mean that's that's a but bias feels like a safer word for people than go with bias and part mm -hmm. of bias is the inability to see such things as bias you know mm -hmm. you, could, you you know your bias if you think you're not biased like that is <laughs> the the sort of a definition but i yeah. The Christians have a great advantage, though, with this term, because it does connote a sort of that there's a damage to 
our biases to, you know, we can, the culture can talk till it's blue in the face about being vulnerable and being imperfect and being, you know, broken even, but you, it has a very difficult time naming the uh, fallout of that brokenness mm. because it's so afraid of any kind of moral judgment. And the truth is lots of judgments and condemnations end up making the problems worse. And yet, but to the person who's been damaged, who's been hurt, it doesn't help to say like, well, that's just, you know, that's okay because no one's, everyone's imperfect. You, know, you want to say, no, everyone's not perfect. And that's a problem. Like the, the, the result of that, yes, I have serious depression. Yes. I have a, a deep seated anger from a terrible childhood, but that also creates damage in the lives of my own children. You know, like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, mm -hmm. you can have sympathy for me without kind of uh, you know, a Christian would say, well, something has to be done. Like there, there has mm -hmm. to be some kind of redressing of this damage. So sin, mm -hmm. I think, is a way of talking about the inherited uncontrollability of a kind of a, a bias against flourishing that, that we find in human beings post Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And yet it also has a way of there is a value judgment to it in that I don't want to say that the damage is neutral or unimportant. So that's where this book goes further, I think, than a lot of the yeah. kind of cultural language around it. It seems that the Christian perspective also in that same theme of being a little more, more complicated, more humble, it does allow for that personal responsibility part too. The low anthropology that I find outside of Christianity where it's good and right is it does recognize a lot of the brokenness and the limitation and the extenuating circumstances might be, maybe we would call it for my behavior. But there's this sort of sigh of relief I feel too. And I can actually take responsibility as well. Like I can acknowledge, yeah, I have these problems and these limitations and I also chose to act on them. And that's part of the brokenness, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think for sin, for Christians, they've been taught that it ceases or you, you are, you're able to have mm -hmm. power over it once you become a Christian. And I don't think that's, that's really true. I think the Holy Spirit can have, have power over sin. Christ's resurrection has defeated death, the devil, the world, you know, and sin. But I also think that as in the sort of already and not yet, that we remain sinners in need of God's grace. We never, we never move past that. And in fact, you know, you asked about my work with Mockingbird. The, the reason it's called Mockingbird is because we repeat the song we've heard and we believe Christians never sort of move beyond their need for grace. And a lot of people who grew up in the church have, if not implicitly or sort of not explicitly, they've implicitly uh, understood Christianity to be about getting better and improving. And rather than being the place you go when you fail to improve. Amen. Christianity is not the place you go to get better, but the place you go because you're getting worse. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the refuge. Mm. What do you say to the folks who find that this may be a trick question. I don't mean it to be, but it's just like, what do you say to the folks who find that to be incredibly depressing? Right. Like I want to get better though. I mean, come on, David, don't you understand? I want to get better. I don't want you to just tell me you're, you're not going to get better. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, first of all, I think it's more depressing to tell someone they are going to get better and then they don't. I think that that's actually, again, setting them up for a yeah. worse defeat. That's what sets people up for walking away from the faith altogether. Cause they feel they were tricked. Yeah. They feel they were, mm -hmm. there was a bait and switch. 
And if, but if I can tell you that in fact, we're living in us under a veil of tears and this, uh, the way that American can do kind of self-help mentality is intertwined itself with the gospel is actually, I think the work of the devil <laughs> and, and in many ways has set us up for a vast deconversion because people feel like this product that they consumed that was supposed to help them lose weight has made them gain weight. I think that that's, uh, a, a, that's a that's that's not just disappointing. That makes you so angry that you want to sue the people that get sold you this product, and you mm. spend the rest of your life trying to sue them. But if I can tell you that in many ways um, you remain the same person after conversion that you were beforehand, and yet you do have a relationship with a living God who wants, who has good designs for you, and in some way that you may not even be able to understand is in charge. And that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the world in such ways that it is not as bad as it could possibly be. And in fact, we're surrounded by evidence of enormous beauty. I mean, life is like a surprise party going from one, one incredible thing to the next in a certain respect. Mm-hmm. Given what human beings are like, it's always like you always have to flip it on its head. People are like, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And you just want to say, well, why do good things happen to bad people is the real mm-hmm. question, um, given what you and I are actually like. I mean, if you want to live under a rock and think that, you know, uh, human beings always have the best intentions for themselves or other people and that we're not all a tangle of motivations and competing interests and, and uh, d- deeply consumed by petty jealousies and um, uh, insecurities, then um Go for it, but you're going to be more disillusioned in the in the end result. If I can give you a realistic anthropology that puts the onus on God to do the transforming and the work, mm-hmm. rather than in your own ability to become a different person over time, I think that that's a much more life giving and ultimately hopeful way, and less depressing. Yeah. So, but I get also get the fact that if 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 a person's faith for them has become about the project of living, rather than the project of dying, I think it's about the project of dying. And I, I, and I, I, that does not preclude living because in, in the New Testament, I hear a cycle of death and resurrection. I don't hear a sort of a utopian vision of like kingdom come. I hear about sort of God bringing, you know, the Holy Spirit within you to, working to, to, to completion uh, and sort of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing and all of this sort of mysterious, almost circular way of mm working. I, I think you're in much stronger territory, but I also understand that people don't want to relinquish, especially if they feel they've earned something or they've worked really hard to get to where they are today, then that's going to be perceived as an enormous threat. If you're a person who's had everything taken from them or feel like they've, they're in prison in some way, or that they are dying, or they're in the midst of serious grief, then I think the word of the cross and the promise of salvation is going to ring a lot less depressing. It's going to yeah. see, seem like the best news on earth. It just yeah. depends on where your agency is, it, wh- wh- where you're putting your faith. Yeah. Oh man, there's so much good stuff here. Like there's so many thoughts <laughs> pinging in my my head here, David. But the, the thing that's striking me right now is the way that if, you know, we've got this framework set up for reality, high and low anthropology and their consequences. And so I'm seeing very clearly in this moment how God's use of the law is such a gracious thing. Because when I've when I think that I can 
and I'm living in that high anthropology way of viewing the law as something that is within my grasp, you know, you said it is more depressing to live that way and to then face, but why am I not? I, I think I can, but I'm not. And that that is the path to just like a deeper pit of despair. And so God's use of the law as a mirror to point out, hey, man, you're not all that you think you are. It, it, it never feels good, but I'm mm. seeing it in this way where it's like, that is such a gracious move by God to lower my anthropology so that I go, wow, so that I have the right expectations so that I can relate to him as savior and Lord and receive from him. Mm. Like, I don't know. I, I've wrestled with that dynamic and how to view the law as gracious, but for some reason that has given me the lens where it's like, that makes sense. That makes absolute sense why God would use the law to destroy my high anthropology, my high view of self, so that I have a higher view of him. Mm. In one of the last chapters, you say that, I think you maybe attributed it to your father, the lower one's anthropology, the higher one's Christology. Yeah. Yes. Oh, thank you, Peter. I, I think that's a, it's a, the distinction between the law and the gospel is something I hold dear, and it's very close to the, the, the beating heart of Mockingbird. And um, I think that it, Christians that start to view the law primarily as a sort of a blueprint for living are going to um, really miss out on what the Jesus is doing when he's saying, do not worry about anything, or when he says, you know, give away everything you own, or when he says, you know, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. I mean, I think, I think he is after faith. I think he's trying to create faith in the, in the, in the hearts of people and faith in God usually begins where faith in oneself ends. And so to, to raise the bar constantly on the law, which doesn't feel gracious at all, but it does, it does have the, the, it has a kind of a, the impact of surrender in the human creature at which point God takes the reins, which were always his, and he was always had in the beginning. But for our sake, you know, what, where do we get to the, even in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's preaching the law at its most beautiful. And you can say, oh my gosh, I acknowledge the fact that a world in which people weren't worried about things, where people gave away everything they own, where no one, you know, lusted or after, or was angry with other people. I can affirm that that sounds like a much more beautiful world. And, but I can also say, I can't in, engineer those things on my own. But then Jesus says, because the disciples are like, how, how is that possible? Because he's basically talking about perfection and he says it there. And he says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. I mean, that is his promise. That is his, mm. the declaration. That is yeah. where, where all of a sudden I'm filled back with hope. I don't have to say that the law is bad. Of course it's not bad. It would be great to live in that world. But I also know that that's the world that only God can bring about. And so any kind of honest reckoning with myself will, especially if, if that's the kind of standard of the law that Jesus is truly preaching there. Otherwise, you have to kind of like explain it away and say he didn't really mean that or like he was using hyperbole or, you know, they just get to try as hard as you can. And like he sees the heart in that regard. I, I'm much more confident in the kind of it was impossible with man is possible with God. And that maybe that's where he's trying to lead us just like he's trying to lead other people that way too. I think that's the thing that, you know, almost full circle here, what this lower, <laughs> low anthropology, uh, having a low anthropology, one of the things that really seems to free me from is kind of that 
constant navel gazing because it's really what I hear being said here is it's really turning my attention to what God is doing. Mm. It's like releasing me from the self-obsession of what I need to do to be able to see what God is actually doing, how Jesus actually cares, how Jesus actually brings about (laughs) the good that I want, you know, for me. And geez, what a relief. (laughs) What a relief to be like, okay, Jesus is going to be the one doing this stuff for me. And there's such a difference. Like if you're involved in a church community or a Christian community of any kind, you like everyone, we can have all the plans you want, but you just, it's much, once you sort of wait to see what God is actually doing. And then he's like, I want to get involved with that. Like that's Mm -hmm. much more fun (laughs) because you feel like, Oh, it's not dependent on my vision or my creativity or my energy level. I just see, this is clearly, this is this funny thing that God has dropped in all of our laps here at this church. And we're going to be the church that, you know, has a ministry to the blind, you know, and who, who knew that was what was going to happen. And, but it, it's so such a non sequitur that it must be of God. Let's go get involved with that. And then all of a sudden you can sort of lose yourself in something that is a truly other centered. Uh, and it could be anything. The more I travel around, the more you find that churches are involved in such the ones where there's joyful service and that, that kind of has an exponential kingdom of God type of quality are the ones where the impetus or the corner of ministry that they're looking into came about through some very strange means and you're like wait that's how you guys are why you're in doing this thing in the city where you're teaching all these people to read you're like uh i just think god provides you know and 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 we do we we see that and and the joy is always in sort of not even partnering with god but just sort of walking through the open doors and the surprise party of the holy spirit it's that is to that is faith, right? Is to believe that God is actually active and leading and can communicate and is does have our interest and others' interest in mind. I mean, to actually believe that I, you know, I think the flip side of that is some of the Christian communities or churches that that I've been aware of that say a lot of really good things, but are and this is going to be really. I don't want this to sound as judgmental as it's going to sound, but are functional atheists, mm. right? Like grabbing so much control, making up so many plans there. We're going to really run this show and make, and, and because in some sense, there's like no faith that God might actually have a plan. We got to do it ourselves. Yeah. And that's, by the way, that's, that's the church left, right, and center. It's like, it, there's a, there's a liberal version of that and a conservative version of that, but it's, it's the same, it's the same DNA and it has to do with ego and it has to do with control. And you always have to ask yourself, like, what, what about this ministry would not work if God were not involved? You know, like, like mm. what it, those are the questions that are important. What about this doesn't make sense based on human reason alone? And then mm. then you sort of see where you're at. And the truth is like a lot of, you just have to, you just honestly just have to like walk into most churches and you'll find something like that. You do find that kind of a joylessness about policing each other's, when people stop sort of being completely consumed with policing one another's sin and a little more interested in the faith in God who's alive question. And by the way, I, I sound like I've, I've got some sort of watertight answer for this. Like I, 
I, I, I struggle just as much as anyone does, but you know, you, you do have like a, you also have churches that are sort of so hell bent on <laughs> hell bent on, mm-hmm. on saying the right thing all times that you get the sense that they never color outside of the lines for the sake of love. And, and there's something dispositional about these things that I think is part of a low anthropology that doesn't hold uh, too tightly. It has conviction, but also gets off the bus right before 100%, you know? (laughs) Yeah. As we kind of, as we kind of wrap up to the end here, I, this, this is reminding me of the question that Peter, you were asking you before we, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, And it's, and I, I won't steal it from you. I'll let you ask it, but it's just, it strikes me as you're talking, David, that the, the temptation to put this, you know, the temptation to take this book and make it into here's the answer. Uh, I, I probably am stealing your question, Peter, but this is something that I, I'm experiencing in my own life is like a low anthropology is something that's more lived out than it is like organized in my head and then acted on because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm limited and I, I don't do it very well. You know, I can't think it very well. And there's not that direct connection between thinking the right thoughts all the time and acting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, yeah, Peter, I'm sorry. I, I, if I stole your question. It's okay, Brandon. I understand that you're a double self-centered human being. So you stealing my question <laughs> makes perfect sense. <laughs> Love it. I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> but that's that's pretty much it. It's it's like, frankly, David, the, the way that I believe you paint reality, the picture of reality very accurately in this book is attractive. Like there's something freeing in that. And, and it's a fine line between feeling freed by that to then saying, oh, now that I understand this picture of reality, I can somehow get outside of the system. And now I, you know, oh, mm. I understand that I'm, you know, double natured. So now I don't have to be. Mm. And, and, you know, like there's this subtle way that in, in embracing the beauty of a lower anthropology, an accurate view of reality, that I somehow slip right back into that high anthropology of like, well, now that I've got that secret, <laughs> it's easy from here. And it's, I, I, I got it. I got it. Peter, you said, you said it really well earlier. And David, he, what he said was there's an irony in reading a book that is basically telling you a book can't change you. (laughs) Well, I think you've read the book very closely and, and taken it in. So I think that, yes, the, the, if, if the, if the book ends up telling you that you're, you just have to read this book more carefully and then you'll be okay. The book in the conclusion, at least, I tried to say ultimately God is the, is the arbiter of change and the agent of, of hope in the world. And that God is not, not to be contained and not to be reduced into the pages of any kind of book. And so a book can only do so much, you know, it can, I think it can be somewhat helpful. It can be diverting. It can be entertaining. But again, part of the doubleness is is saying that like, even if I understand it, I'm still going to act in other ways that show that I don't. I mean, like this is self-awareness is not some kind of silver bullet in any respect. If anything, it sometimes makes it just more acute when you do act in hypocritical ways. Mm-hmm. So I hope there's some irony to it and there's some freedom to it that is evoked through the book, but ultimately the book, it's just a book. I want to leave the answer in God's hands yeah, rather than our own, even if, because again, a low anthropology is also saying that like, 
I cannot, I, even a low anthropology I have to hold loosely, especially since the fact that I cannot, what a doubleness would say is I cannot act on a low anthropology with any kind of consistency. That's what a low anthropology is, mm -hmm. you know, that I cannot act on my virtues, whatever they may be with any kind of reliability or consistency. I can pray. I can, because yeah, we, we talked about it going hand in hand with a high Christology. I also think it goes hand in hand with a high pneumatology. Mm -hmm. So some understanding of the Holy spirit, you don't have to be a, become a charismatic, but some sense that it's not up to you to reduce this into action items or to lord it over other people with, you know, some kind of superiority. I really hope that it, it's, if it does anything good, it can maybe be a, something that's used in service of humility, because I do not see that to be something that there's a surplus of and in, in my own heart as well. Right. So, yeah. But I think Thank that's you. where that's a wellspring of faith and a lot of love. And, and I know that there have been times when I felt close to God and there are usually times when that are intertwined with humility and then the Holy spirit at work. Oh yeah. The, the way I'm feeling, and I'll use that word, I think accurately, the way that I feel as I've read your book and in this right now in this conversation, it's exciting to talk about this, about what I believe to be a very accurate picture of reality. And that excitement for me, it, like it's this adrenaline, like I want there to be action after this, you know, I, and, and and that's part of the, oh, I, I get it. So like, what do I do with this? And that's part of the problem is that, you know, that puts it back on me. And so a simple thought came to mind of just like reframing that of like, I don't know, where is that energy going? Because it does feel like I need to acknowledge how I'm feeling. But if that energy goes back into, well, I, I just get to try harder now, like I've got it, mm -hmm. then I'm probably going to wind up stuck. So rather just, I don't know, the word gratitude, thankfulness, praise even like, and I think that would be an appropriate response to the end, how you conclude the book is right. Yes. Mm -hmm. The worker here is God. And, and, and so the excitement and the faith that wells up in me with that, rather than saying, okay, now how do I apply that? Just go, oh, God, or how do I, how do I, how do I judge the world's high anthropologists in a way mm. that will really change them? You know, that's, again, you're slipping right back. So yeah. it's, I think, yes, gratitude. I hope, yeah. I hope that's, that's what I pray for an increase in gratitude. Yeah. And because gratitude is also another wellspring of other centeredness and, 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 and acts of service and love and patience and, and ultimately faith. So yep. Yep. I'm, I'm grateful. I want there to be, I want people to be excited about the book. I, by the way, yeah. I should mention I would be that it's it's coming out in hard sorry in paperback finally on July 25th. Oh, and perfect! So it'll be cheaper, so you can yeah. buy many more copies to many convert more. all your friends to this right, right way. I'm just I'm I'm kidding I'm kidding. I just want people to know it's out there. It's available yeah. if you want it. The, the, well, the well, algorithms maybe will make it cheaper. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter, I was going to answer your question. I like I know exactly what anybody listening right now should do next. Like I have precise steps for you. Number one, you need to go buy the book. Like that's, that's an easy one. Just go Duh. buy low anthropology, David Zoll available everywhere. You know, Amazon is the, it's there, but it's also on the next step you should do actually, but after you buy the book, you need to go listen to the episode on our podcast by his brother, Simeon Zoll about pneumatology. That's, it's all about that. And then, and then head over to imbird.com perhaps that's better better place to buy the book do you get is that a better place to be send people to buy the book 
I think so. I don't know. It's the book, <laughs> okay. book buying process has been completely hijacked by zeros Ever, and yeah. ones and algorithms. Yeah. I have no clue who's making money and where it's going. <laughs> I just know that I hope that the 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 what's the content of the book. I hope it's of help to people. But yeah, I, I, yes, all right, great. Buy it there. Buy it at Ember.com. Buy it anywhere. Okay, or, or don't. So, so buy the book. Sure ember.com listen to our other podcast with simians all that's that i think would be a great follow-up if you haven't already heard that to hear and of course send us an email we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear questions about this thoughts about this it's just it's easy podcast at signpostin.org yeah we'd love to carry on the dialogue and then last lastly i think if you'd give us a rating a review if you'd go on apple podcasts and give a five-star review of this amazing podcast. We'd really appreciate that because that would help all the channels, algorithms, things that do its thing to find us. And that's what it's really all about, by the way. I mean, what <laughs> it really is all about is my own personal ego be, oh no, sorry. Wait, go back and start over this podcast. All right. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for being with us. I hope you really enjoyed this show as much as we did and may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostin.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostin.org donate. That's signpostin.org slash donate. And thank you.